I listened to two debates over the last week amongst Christians. One was astounding and interesting about global warming. The other was, uh, it's okay, about immigration. I want to give you some thoughts from those debates and a lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing could be I will open the show this way. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Just to remind you, this is three out of the last, or I guess it's the first of the last three on these airwaves. But if you are on the podcast, as a lot of you are, we'll be sticking with you for a long time to come if the Lord allows. So welcome to it, to his radio and to wherever you find podcasts. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings as their pastor for teaching. You're invited out any given Sunday morning. We just started a brand new series. Don't know long how long it will go, but it is on the law and the gospel. I notice that in evangelical circles right now, there is a reassessment, a reexamination of the many ways Christians have interacted with the idea of secular governments and what the Christian's role is in, in secular societies. I suspect we're going to visit some of that, but just for, even just first week was a good theology lesson on how we read the law and the Bible. You know, I know for a lot of people that's mystifying and confusing. There's some weird stuff in the laws, but it's a good study, and I hope you will join us if you don't have a church home any given Sunday morning. The Gospel Coalition is in the midst of releasing their series of what they call uh, Good Faith Debates. And in those Good Faith Debates, they bring together two Christians that are inside Orthodoxy. I don't think I've heard from anybody in those debates that I would question for a second whether or not they were in the faith. There's certainly a lot of them that I know we probably couldn't be in a church together. There's too many doctrinal differences. But these are folks I'm sure I'll, I'll spend eternity with. And they have varying opinions on... Varying matters. The this last round of debates they released is getting moving, and I uh, I think it's now they've released three of them. I listened to two this over the last couple days. I want to review them for you. One is an encouragement. Go watch them or listen to them. They're worth your time. They're certainly more. I think they're going to teach you more important things than if you spend an hour listening to Ben Shapiro or Matt Walsh or watching an hour of Fox News. And certainly, you're going to learn more than if you watch their counterparts in other parts of the media. It's always going to be healthier for you, especially if you're coming from a Christian perspective, to hear from believers. And speaking of that, real quick, this is a quick aside. I'm coming back. It occurred to me recently that like, likely the three biggest media voices in American political conservatism are non-Christian voices. They are Ben Shapiro, who's an acting, who's at a Orthodox Jew, Matt Walsh, who's a weird kind of Catholic, I think, and Jordan Peterson, who was a Jungian. He's uh, culturally Christian because Christianity is good for people. That's a, a weird combo, and it, it just occurred to me that what used to be so wedded together, American conservatism and evangelical Christianity, it's less and less the case that there's a lot of other voices that have those ideas, which should tell us to be careful as we listen because sometimes they might have the right conclusion, but they got there the wrong way. Anyway, I can't go off on that. I uh, can't go off on that tangent. Let's stick with the debate. I want to share with you the global warming debate. It was fascinating. Some of these debates have been clunkers, kind of disinteresting, but 
uh, these were two people who were a little bit more passionate than the other pr- participants, and so uh, certainly they kept it as a at a Christian level. That's another good thing these things do. They teach you how to hear something you disagree with and not get your ire up. They teach you to hear a point that you don't like and not think, I'm going to wreck this person. Now, so these two are a little bit more passionate, but certainly respectful. Here's where, uh, I guess I'll give you the summary. The, de- the debate topic is really, for the American Christian, or not really the American Christian, for the Christian modern age, what are our thoughts? What should be our thoughts and opinions when it comes to environmental regulation and how you handle the idea of, a, of climate change or global warming or whatever term you prefer for humanity's effect on the environment? And these two very smart men had a good point of agreement that, of course, uh, there's inside orthodoxy. We, we believe in what they both called creation care. God made the earth. He called it good. He made the skies and the waters and the plants. And he said, these things are good. Therefore, uh, I, I want to take care of the things the Lord said are good. And he made the natural resources of the earth. We want to take care of them. Moreover, they both agree the Genesis mandate is to cultivate the earth, bring forth from it its fruits, even after the curse. Uh, we're told it's going to be by the, you know, the, the sweat of your brow. It'll be through thistles and thorns, I think the King James Version says. But still, work the earth and take care of God's good creation. That's what we're partnering with God in, to rule over his kingdom, and part of his kingdom is creation. And so they were in total agreement on that. In your personal behavior, don't do dumb things to the earth. Don't, uh, with, your, with your chemicals in your house, dispose of them properly. When it comes to littering, don't. When, when, you, when you go to the, when you go to the um, what's it called? The dump. Make sure everything is, is proper and where it's supposed to be. If you do stuff outdoors, you go camping, leave things the way you found it or better than when you went. Take care of the earth. Do those things. I think this is... It goes to me to one, a, a theological example that I, I will run into in conversation uh, regarding our treatment of animals. There, cer- certainly we, the humanity, is different than animals. We're the only thing made in the image of God. But God did make them and call them good. And so, for animal cruelty, or as has been some other culture, even in America and some, some parts of it, the idea of hurting an animal as entertainment. Or, I would even question some of the ethics, I'm saying this quite nicely, question some of the ethics of some of the hunting that goes on, especially big game hunting around the world, for sport. It's just for the fun. They get no other they get no other benefits that some of the benefits that are supposed to come from hunting, they get none of those. I question maybe even go as far as to condemn those ethics. There's there's just this idea. The Lord made the earth. It's good. The Lord made me animals. They're good. Now, in both cases, we always choose humans over the earth. We always choose humans over the animal. Just, but just because we choose humans over those two things does not mean they have no intrinsic value. They're intrinsically valuable. God saw them and said they're good, and so we take good care of them. Now, those are your points of agreement when it came to this global warming debate. And from there, I, I want to be charitable, but the guy I agreed with more just seemed like more of the adult. 
was willing to recognize one of the axioms of life that there are no solutions, there are just trade-offs. There are no solutions in your life. You should know that. There's just a trade-off. You, you spend your money on one thing, you can't spend it on another. You spend your time on one thing, you can't spend it on another. When you take money from one thing in a government program, it means it can't go to another thing. Money's not, inf- not infinite. Time is not infinite. There's only trade-offs in life. And so adults have to come to every decision and recognize, when I make this call, I'm choosing a winner and I'm choosing a loser. When it, in your budget, in your household, you choose uh, to send one kid to the music camp, but it's, it specifically means that you cannot go on this other small weekend vacation with your spouse, you, you, ch- you chose yourself as the loser in the situation because there's finite resources. Especially when it comes to environmental policy, it's just important for everyone to grow up, be an adult, and recognize there are no solutions, there's just trade-offs, and what are our trade-offs going to be? So here's, uh, I don't think this participant of the debate did a, did a great job of summing up his point, so I'm tr- going to try to sum it up better. Here's the my takeaways. Most of the efforts in especially carbon, uh, what we're looking for is a diminution to diminish the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. One, most of the efforts in the West are meaningless. China, within, I think it's like 30 years, China will will be producing more carbon than, I think it's 30 times more carbon than America. If I have that number wrong, it's only by a little. And they're already producing more right now. I mean, so the Western world, Western Europe and the United States could turn themselves off, just shut everything down and stop emitting any kind of carbon that comes from electricity or powering our our grid. And China and India are coming right now. Guys, there's two and a half billion people between those two countries. There's barely a billion people in Western Europe and the United States. And they're all growing. We're, We're shrinking. So... Any effort you make to minimize your carbon output over here, it doesn't actually matter. You might buy yourself 20 years, you might buy yourself 10 years, but if your if your fear is that uh, carbon emissions are going to put Miami underwater, well, you're not stopping that it, when it comes to diminishing the amount of carbon because China's going to do what they're going to do and the rest of the world's going to do what they're going to do, which brings me to number two. These efforts of car- carbon diminution ultimately hurt people that we actually care should care about a lot. Guys, right now, there's a couple billion people on the planet that cook their food over fire powered with dung. There's a couple billion people on the planet that I don't want to deny electricity to. A couple billion people on the planet I don't want to deny heat, heat to. And the cheap forms of heat are coal. The cheap forms of energy are natural gas. The cheap forms of even transportation in the developing world is going to be the burning of oil. This this debater did a good job of just making that point. that If you decide this is what you want, that carbon diminution is what you want, you are going to have to say to a, a, a couple billion to three billion people on planet Earth that live in what we would all definitely call poverty, we have to say to them, you will never come out of poverty. You, you don't get to because we're going to demand you have electric cars. And we're going, to de- we're going to demand your grid is powered by wind and solar. E- even right now, in the most developed economies in the world where, where we want to do solar, it's like less than 5% of the power grid can come from solar and wind. There's just too much demand. And so these types of efforts hurt people on planet Earth that aren't doing well that we would like to see do better. And two, it does hurt us here. This is a big part of the trade-off discussion. 
when we decide we want to diminish our carbon output, we are saying to people who work hard every day, coal miners, oil rig guys, the, the folks that process natural gas, we are saying to them, we choose the planet over you. And some of you might say, well, yeah, of course we should. We should, of course, choose the planet because choosing the planet means we're choosing the future us because the future humans can't live on a planet that's going to get destroyed. And I have a response to that I want to give you. But if we're coming from this ethic of humans are the one thing made in the image of God, we've got to recognize that you're saying to humans, yeah, your family can just suffer economically. Yeah, you guys can just be poor. Uh, we got to save the planet. And so tens of millions of you will just toss into unemployment. We're just going to toss your, your way of life and your, your way of being out. We don't respect it. We don't have any value for the hard work that you've, you've done to provide energy for your countrymen for a century. And you, I mean, that's what happened to all, a lot of Appalachia and we, when we hollowed that out. I mean, admittedly, the type of energy that they they produce is less efficient. It's certainly not clean. But that's what we do. And my instinct is going to be to choose humans over the planet. So let me go ahead and give the response to those of you that say, but if you keep doing that, you won't have a planet for future humans. Cool. Let's talk about that. We have other options besides just turning the planet off. We could also do mitigation. So, for example, I fully believe Miami is headed towards being underwater. I think that's going to ha- probably not my lifetime, but that's what it does seem to be seem to be the case that there, there's enough water rising that low lying, highly populated areas are going to run into a lot of trouble. Okay, so let's let's mitigate that. Why do I have to tell people in Africa and Latin America in developing parts of Asia they don't get to have power? So that, Miami, so that Miami can not stay underwater when I can just build a seawall. There's an entire program at Eastern Carolina University out in Greenville, North Carolina that studies mitigation efforts. Just Maybe it sounds the opposite of Pollyanna-ish. Maybe it just sounds like you're, they're giving up. But what they're saying in that university setting is we're not stopping this. The, the planet is on, an, is on a, a route that cannot be changed So let's plan ahead. Guys, we're so good at that. Humans are so adaptable. We've been adapting to environmental change for, depending on your worldview, thousands of years or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on your worldview. We're really adaptable. And now we have some of the greatest technology we've ever had, the smartest minds in the world. And so why not carbon capture? There's incredible uh, advancement on the idea of carbon capture finding a way where we can still produce the carbon, but then uh, capture it and send it, depending on the idea. Some folks talk about sending it to outer space. Uh, Some have some other ideas on how to handle our excess carbon here on Earth. Okay, so I am am saying, to do the math, I think I would say with biblical ethics, is we have a resourced people in the West, and I think a lot of the good science now happens out East, where we can innovate answers to our environmental problems without having to tell poor people and working class people, we're just going to wreck you because we're choosing the planet. We're just going to choose people. You know, the, um, the market tends to do that. The oil companies back in the 2010s 
needed a way to extract oil from shale because there was it's it's just much more expensive to build to build oil rigs in the Gulf and uh, in Alaska if that ever opens up in some very hard places. We know that there's oil to be extracted from shale underground, and with no government money, no government program, the market went to work and found one a method of extracting oil from shale. That's awesome, and two directional drilling so as to drill for oil that's already caught up in something else, extracted from the earth safely, and power cars and houses in the grid. That's incredible. In that man, that was driven by profit motive. They didn't just all they really didn't want to do was spend money on gigantic oil rigs. That's without someone on purpose saying, I want to come up with methods of diminishing the effect of carbon in the atmosphere. Man, there's all kinds of innovation to be had there. All right, so that's debate one. Ultimately, I think one side really won it just by being the adult in the room, saying we got to choose, we're either going to choose humans or we're going to choose the earth right now, and we have other ways of saving the earth besides hurting humans right now. And then ultimately, I think it's important to always recognize, as long as China and India is going to continue to grow, our efforts here in the West are meaningless because the ecology of the globe is the globe. And China and India have to do something different if it's ever going to affect anything here. When we come back, I have a much shorter uh, take on this immigration debate. It was not nearly as, I guess, contentious or there wasn't as much deviation between the two sides. We'll do that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. The Gospel Coalition giving us the opportunity to explore things going on in the world and how a Christian needs to think about them. Segment one was the Christian and the environment or global warming, climate change, whatever you prefer. It was a good debate. Now I want to give you some thoughts from an immigration debate they had on those Gospel Coalition great debates. You can find them on YouTube or on the Gospel Coalition website. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. Uh, so as always, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my odd name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I'm going to do my best to get to a tweet sent in by, I think it, I think it's pronounced Johan, uh, who sent me something to go over. We'll see if we can get there before the show is done, but let's get back to the, the Gospel Coalition debates. On, on this debate, I, I don't know if it's just because people are kind and don't want to be pugnacious. There just seemed to be very little disagreement from th- these two guys, so let's give our opportunity to make sure we at least understand some things. Here are some points of clear agreement that maybe some of you do need to hear, not because you might be guilty of these, but because someone in your life is, and you might need to be equipped to talk about it. So, for example, I thought the even the anti, more anti-immigration guy starts with saying, well, let's start here. We love our immigrant neighbors. If someone's in the neighborhood, their kid plays on the soccer team with our kid, we are on the high school high school PTA committee together. You go to church with the the immigrant. We love our immigrant brothers and sisters. And he went so far as to say, and this guy was super anti-legal immigration, as we all should be. Um, hear what I said. Illegal immigration. Treat them with love. 
there's not a there is no boundary here to who you treat lovingly. So let's start there. That includes how you meme. There's a little bit of that from some folks that I know personally. That they will share some things that uh, some things are just funny and good nature. That's that's the good stuff. But the uh, when I say funny and good nature, I'm saying it is usually about immigrants or immigration. But it's obviously not mean. And then there are some things I see shared that are. They are not in the spirit of loving your neighbor. So that's one. We should all agree, love your immigrant neighbor, whether they're here, whether they're here legally or illegally, don't have a prejudice against them. Two, there was great agreement, be eager to share Jesus with them. Th- this might be way easier that, than uh, sharing the gospel with someone who grew up in the American South where everyone thinks they know it. It's actually one of the very profoundly interesting things about living where we do and when we do. We are being invaded by Northeasterners who grew up in Catholicism and Midwesternism that grew up in Catholicism. They, they knew nothing of practicing Christianity, but they know lots of baptism when you're a baby, and they know a lot of rituals on Easter and Christmas. They don't really know the gospel. Equally, as we have uh, German immigrants because of BMW and South Korean immigrants because of Proterra here in the upstate of South Carolina. It's, it's occurring to me now, my audience is not all in the upstate, but forgive me. As we have immigrants from Latin America coming up, again, often coming from either very secular places or Catholic places, this is a different uh, soil in which to sow seed. So that doesn't mean, this is is one of their points of contention, that doesn't mean that we want people to come illegally. It doesn't mean that you have to be for a lot of immigration so that you can have more people to share the gospel with. You don't have to be for more immigration for that. But if they're there, if they're coming, then it is opportunity to share the gospel to people different than have heard it. Let's take that opportunity. Uh, three, they both agreed we, w- we would want to pursue equal justice under the law for our immigrant neighbors. The non-native born, that's just right out of Deuteronomy and or... That's Deuteronomy. Yeah, that it's the idea here is, hey, this law that we're saying is the law for Israel, if you got someone coming through and... They end up in a situation where this law affects them. Judge them by this law as well. Protect them by these laws as well if they're in your land. And then I think, uh, I want to give some nuance on this. In Old Testament law, there, sen- there seems to be a threefold group of people that the Old Testament law is calling followers of Jesus to be particularly sensitive to. And it is the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. That's true. The sojourner. The reason would be because of their vulnerability. The orphan is uniquely vulnerable. The widow, especially then, where women really couldn't take care of themselves, is now particularly vulnerable. And the sojourner, not being connected to any social network, not having family or extended family to lean on, maybe being take advantage of, taken advantage of because of language barrier, be particularly sensitive to those who are vulnerable. That's not necessarily our immigrants because those who come legally, by the way, are some of our most successful citizens. We have I mean, the average Indian family and South Korean family earns, I think bo- now both groups earn more than the average white family. We do, I think not, that's true of Nigerian immigrants as well that come legally. And listen, not everyone who comes illegally is particularly vulnerable. So I want to I want to put some nuance on that idea. The 
they kind of t- well, one of them kind of talked about the idea of the Old Testament saying, we need to think about the immigrant like we think about the orphan and the widow. Well, hold on. We're supposed to think about those three because of their vulnerability and not all not all immigrants are equally vulnerable to being visited by injustice. Okay, so there are some points of agreement. Some clear Bible. Love your neighbors, be eager, eager to share Jesus with them, look for equal justice and help provide for them against injustice if they are particularly vulnerable. Now, from there, I think we this is where I drew some drew some drew some lines for me on immigration, e- even as a guy who is very pro-immigration. You've one of you, and I, I don't know if you're going to come with me to the podcast, so I I should just say to the you, you know who you are, the one person who listens who will write to me about immigration with some regularity, my friend down in Greenwood. Uh, I know you don't like this, and several of you don't, but I'm really pro-immigration. I I like that book came out a couple years ago called One Billion Americans. The idea here being people are resources. It is when people bump up against each other that new innovation happens. I recognize that our education system's not not stellar and that there are science, technology, engineering, and math programs around the world that are better than ours. And I, I want an all-star team. That's what I love. I've always loved about the United States. We are the world's all-star team. Bring everybody if they will contribute and will assimilate. That was at least, I guess I'll give you two thoughts I, I took on my thoughts from immigration. One, I, I don't find any need for me to impose my view on immigration on any other Christian. I don't think I have a, uh, a, a more biblical view than someone who says, I want to restrict immigration, at least it's for the right reasons. Like this guy in the debate that wanted to restrict immigration was often saying, well, what, a, what about our people who do want to work these jobs? We, we busted up textiles. We, got, we, we did a terrible job on hospitality. Americans need jobs, and when we have too much immigration, then people's jobs hurt. I don't think he's right on that economically, but okay, at least his heart is in a good place. He's just looking at maybe low-skilled labor in his own country and saying these people need jobs and immigration hurts jobs because, admittedly, Big, greedy corporations will just pay as little as they can, and foreign workers will often take less money, and therefore the, the native worker is disadvantaged. So I don't feel any need to for either of us to be able to impose our views. More versus less immigration does not have a clear biblical mandate. That's one. Two, I thought the anti-immigration guy made a very good biblical compelling point. Governments are instituted to choose their own people. That doesn't necessarily mean the church in that country is designated that way. But it is incumbent upon a nation to come up with policy that doesn't serve the world the best, but serves their citizens the best. That actually is their mandate. That makes some of you uncomfortable, but that is their mandate. Their mandate is to serve their citizens, not the citizens of other countries. Now, where the, where the Lord gives wealth and the, there's blessing, I would argue that a, a biblically worldview-informed country would be generous in its immigration, would be generous in how it lets people, to, how many people it lets in through norm, uh, normalization and uh, assimilation. So that's at least uh, number two, is uh, 
the governments get to choose their own people. A, a government is not immoral for restricting immigration if their motivation is trying to do something for their own people. Uh, most of the time, that's an, econo- an economic argument that I don't find compelling. I think it's incorrect, but that's their argument. And then I made the point there that the government has to choose their people, but the church doesn't. The church knows it's global. There's even, I think, a compelling case in one of the epistles that says, uh, t- take care of take care of the folks you can take care of, and first, your brothers and sisters in the faith. I just I paraphrase that. And so, for example, man, man that feels like 10 years ago now probably, uh, maybe a little less. There's a lot of Christians being persecuted in Iraq, and I had a great deal of interest in getting those folks here. I donated whatever little money I could. I marched in a march down in Birmingham with Glenn Beck because they were working on getting Christians out of Iraq. So there's... The, the the Christian ethic doesn't have to be that local government's ethic on who we choose. Uh, but then finally, I think this is so key in that we, we can't be sorry for saying so because to have, uh, we want people to flourish, right? We want human flourishing. We want good for people. And for any country to flourish, to do well, it has to have social cohesion. And so, we do well to say of our immigration stance, however many or however many few you want to come, we want them to assimilate. This is what made us the, the greatest country in the world. I, I guess we still hold that title by default because there's no other competition. But we were once so great because we were the only place on planet Earth that had people from everywhere. And we, cho- we chose a transcendent identity while holding on to some of it. Uh, Italian immigrants still held on to a lot of their culture. Polish immigrants h- held on to a lot of their culture. Uh, I'm thinking of Peruvian immigrants held on to a lot of their culture. The Irish did too. What, for that matter, especially on the West Coast, the Chinese, the South Korean uh, immigrants, they held on to a lot of their culture, but there was something transcendent. It was uh, leaving one land. It, th- that land is no longer my chief land, it is this place, America, its values, its values of individual liberty, its values of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of economic movement. These values are the ones I adopt. I mean, at some level, I get really pro-immigration because I want, that's what I want. We've broken an entire two generations of Americans who kind of don't like this place, think it's core and is rotten to its core. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to bring in some folks who actually like the place, who who have been around the world enough to see what we have here is actually quite special and quite unique, and want to come experience this quite special and quite unique place. But that's not it's just Americans. So for Christians around the world, one of the things we should advocate for in our immigration systems is naturalization into that culture. That if someone is coming from South Korea to Nigeria, the South Korean the, the, the Christian in Nigeria should be on the side of that South Korean adopting Nigerian values if you're going to come to that land. But, and the same if they come to America. So that's the immigration debate. Here's what I want to do. I want to go and take this break early, come back and do a couple things. Uh, the, uh, his name is John Stewart. He's been you know 30 years now in the news. He made a really bad argument recently on his show. I don't want to dunk on it and get angry about it, but for some reason, the internet thought it was a good argument, and just in case you saw it, 
and thought, man, why are people thinking this is a good argument? I want to respond to it for you so that you have that queued up if it comes up in conversation. Uh, and then I, I did see a story in the New York Times that has piqued my interest on what it means for Christian policy regarding uh, the differences in how uh, companies treat the poor and the wealthy. We'll do that and hopefully a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Cora Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I will be careful in this segment not to revisit a previous version of myself. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk, find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or if you would be so kind, you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I will take your opinions, snarky comments, whatever it is you want to share. I, yeah, I, I'm not into the uh, the YouTube genre of this media figure dunks on this person. That's actually how like Ben Shapiro got famous because Ben Shapiro uh, demolishes college student at a question. Like this is a thing on the left and the right. That's that's the the headline is this person who's usually not very well equipped to make their argument, not a very well informed person, started talking to a somewhat better informed person, certainly a more articulate person, and that person on the right or the left made. That person looks stupid, and so our lizard brains, our tribal brains, go, yeah, I like that person made him look stupid, or her look stupid. All right, that happened recently with John Stewart. Uh, he's been around for like 30 years now. He's like 60, or he's in his 60s somewhere. He had on his show a state senator from Oklahoma to talk about gun control. For some reason... The internet, especially left of center internet, thought John Stewart just destroyed this guy. Now, granted, uh, this interview, I think his name was, I think his name was Dom, something Dom. Uh, he's not our best, certainly not the best, definitely not the best spokesperson for his point of view. Like I, I, I wish, I wish it would have been me in this in the setting where we could talk about it. That's one, two. <laughs> this guy, this state senator, he said he's. We find out after the interview, but he was told. Uh, you know, you might be. This might be edited to make you look bad. Like it's in the it's in the document. It ends up being a, a one hour conversation that gets edited down to eight minutes. And yeah, I guess he doesn't look great. But I would say neither of them do. And I want to illustrate that for you. So I'm not here to defend that the state senator did a good job. He didn't. He didn't do a good job. But to think that John Stewart was making good points here, he was not. So before I start playing this. I opened that segment here saying, here's me trying not to be a former version of myself. Because a former version of myself would just start trying to dunk on this and get angry. I'm going to endeavor not to do that and just respond kindly with facts and information that I think we we need. So I'm going to play for you just two of the clips. It was an eight-minute long clip. We'll probably listen to two minutes of it here, and I'll respond as we go. Uh, his name is Senator Nathan Dom. I'm now finding out, and the interviewer is John Stewart. Here we go. Proponent of the Second Amendment. Uh -huh. I believe the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh -huh. That's the one right that's listed in the Constitution that uses that very specific shall affirmative language. You know, shall not be. Oh, well, it's also there. the one right that uses the the phrase "well regulated." Oh, that's cute. I'm not, I'm not off to a good start. I think I think that was a joke, maybe. But if it was a point, I just want you to be equipped. Uh, well-regulated in the Second Amendment, in the language of the of the time, just meant well-practiced. So the uh, who who just won the Super Bowl? 
the, the Chiefs are a well-regulated team. They call the right play when they're supposed to call it. They're in the right spot when they're supposed to be there. They're a well-regulated team. does certainly not mean anything about government regulation. The well-regulated militia is a well-practiced militia. So I think he was telling a joke, but just in case he was being serious, he is factually incorrect on the meaning of that word. Correct, when it's talking about the militia and the state. By the way, just for clarity's sake, yeah. I'm not against the Second Amendment. I'm not against, I don't want to ban guns, but you're saying... You know, you're against the Second Amendment, and you want to ban guns. Like, we all know it. More guns makes us more safe. Yes. So when we got 400 million guns in the country, we had an increase and gun deaths went up. So when exactly does this curve hit? The senator does a poor job of responding to this. I'll let him respond in a second. But that's actually not true. That's actually one of the great achievements of the 1990s in that crime bill that most folks who voted for it and uh, signed into law even, that president, uh, those who voted for it have now shunned. It's an incredible time where gun proliferation was high. The amount of guns being sold was super high, and our crime rate, including gun crime rate, went way down. Uh, there was a, a spike in 2020 and 2021 because of, I think, response to COVID and what was happening there where violent crime with guns is up. But, guys, actually, I know it doesn't feel like it because a lot of the things we see with gun crime is or crimes committed with guns is so horrific, school shootings, things like that. It's actually not true that there's a correlation here. There's not a correlation between the uh, prevalence of guns and the uh, the gun crime. The argument that, or again, I, I always uh, hate when I say that. I meant crimes committed with guns. The state senator here does an okay job of saying, right, there's been a proliferation of guns. There's a lot of them. There's 400 million of them. And by statistic, it's it, it's very, very few of them are ever used in the commission of a crime. I'll play his response. That takes it down. Would a billion guns do it? Let's just run those numbers. You know, 400 million, 50,000. Uh -huh. You're talking about a less than a fraction of not even a percent, of a hundredth of a percent. But it goes up not down. So your argument is backwards. No, your your argument is backwards. Especially when you, man, when you start looking at that nationwide, the places where there are more guns, there is less crime. There's more guns per person in rural areas. I'm almost positive I, I saw this, that the most guns per person stats are in very low population states that are rural. Even in the Northeast, Vermont is way up there. And Vermont is, heck, they elected Bernie Sanders. Uh, but it's states like the Dakotas and Montana. There's more guns per person. And those are your lowest crime states, lowest homicide using a gun. There's fewer guns per person in highly populated places. Just go with the metro areas like Atlanta or uh, Miami, L.A., Sacramento, Dallas, uh, Houston. There's fewer guns per person, even in states like Texas, that are heavily gunned. But there's more crimes with them. C correlation isn't causation. Uh, Stewart there makes both bad arguments. He tries to say, you're you're arguing correlation by causation, and it's false, uh, where the, the guy's point is actually really well taken, and then Stewart tries his own version of it. Now, here's the part near the end of the interview. that's It's beguiling to me. It seems like there's like the folks think this is a, such a good point, and it just tells me that we don't take rhetoric anymore. That's a class at the at the high school level, and then certainly at the college freshman level, you take rhetoric. It's in part how to articulate your ideas, but one of the things you should learn in rhetoric is how to think in a straight line. 
a lot of if-then scenarios. Uh, it's, it's part of the Enlightenment. We, we don't think in circles. We don't have interlock. One of the terms for a debater is an interlocutor, but that is the intertwining of my debate with his debate, not with different debates of other topics. And so what Stewart here does, I don't know why, it's, been, it's being thought of as this big, dunk, awesome point. And it's one of the most, uh, one of the most out-of-nowhere out of arguments. It's called a non-sequitur. Instead of arguing the point, I, I'm going to bring up something else altogether. So uh, this is seven minutes in. They've been talking about guns the whole time. Stewart's been a little, uh, a little testy, a little emotional. And then he changes, he changes tenor here because I, th- I think he thinks he's got something. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you remember, remember Miss Teen South Carolina in like 2007 or 8 uh, that really thought she had a good answer because about the ma- about the maps thing? She was so confident that, you know, uh, what was the question? The question was one poll found that one-fifth of Americans can't find the U.S. on a world map. And her answer was, I think uh, some people are unable to do so because some people out there in our nation don't have maps. And she was very confident in it, very confident in that answer. That's how Stewart is here. Her answer and his argument are equally intelligent, but they're also given with the same amount of confidence. Here is Stuart. Chaotic. I'll go you one further. You want to ban drag show readings to children. To my eyes, yes. Why? Why, why? What are you protecting? Why can we prohibit children from voting, those under 18 from voting? Why are you banning? That? Is, is that free speech? Are you infringing on that performer's free speech? They can continue to exercise their free speech, just not in front of a child. Why? Because the government does have a responsibility to protect. I'm sorry? The government does. Now, very arrogantly, Stuart gets a, his, he's a good facial expression actor. Uh, he, he puts his hands on his ear like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, he, he's made a point because this guy, this guy has, uh, has admitted, yeah, the government has a responsibility to protect children. And so Stuart thinks he's got a point. I'll let them finish. Does have a responsibility uh-huh. in certain instances to What's the children? leading cause of death amongst children in this country? And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not drag show readings to children. Very Correct, funny. yes. So what is it? I'm presuming you're going to say it's firearms. No, I'm not going to say it like it's an opinion. That's what it is. It's firearms. More than cancer. So that's the analogy. And, he, and then he just does his righteous indignation thing and, uh, and moves on. So let me just explain why it's, it's really not a compelling argument at all. He, so he thinks by getting the guy to say, you are saying governments have a responsibility to protect children. That's why you're doing the drag show thing. You're, you are saying governments have a responsibility to do it. So therefore, to, to protect kids, you have to take guns. You, you have to make it, you either have to confiscate them, you have to, do, you have to do whatever I want you to do on guns, otherwise you're not doing the thing you're supposed to do and protect, and protect children. That, a lot of problems here. One is just the arrogance of thinking you you are the only one that has a solution. Your solution is the only one that is valid. So you're saying, I, I somehow deifying oneself, I know how to protect children. It's me. I've come up with it. And it's to take guns from people. That's how, that's how we're going to do it. Well, I don't accept your premise. I don't think you have a good solution. I reject your solution. And just because I, yeah, I... I acknowledge governments have responsibilities to protect children. Does it mean that I get to, then you get to define what protecting children means? Like, I, I know it sounds a little bit like a jerk, but it's kind of a jerk thing to say because who died and made you king? Why are you, 
who died and made you God? Why are you the one that gets to define how, how we protect our kids? So on its face, at the very beginning, it's immediately a bad argument because it assumes authority that he doesn't have. But second, it's called a non sequitur. This thing you're talking about, drag shows, are not guns. This is not that. Non sequitur. Because I, I could turn around, I'm doing this on purpose, some of you will go, hey, Corey, that's a bad argument, and I'm about to make one on purpose. So uh, Stuart says, well, you say the government is supposed to protect kids, so therefore take guns. And then I say back to him, oh, so you think government should protect kids. Okay, so we ban abortion. Do you see how dumb that is? I'm taking his premise that the government's supposed to protect children and then saying, okay, well, now you have to do it my way. I'm I'm saying that the uh, the death rate from abortion is 100 percent. The death rate from guns in the country is less than one of one percent, uh, one one hundred of a percent for for kids. And so now you have to, you have to do it my way. It's a very dumb argument. This is not that. Guns is not drag shows. Is not abortion. They are different things. And man, this is a problem in the American psyche. People have a lot of trouble staying on topic. I had a Facebook post, I think it was it was during the terrible primary of 16, and I said something like, one of the things I'm noticing is people can't think in a straight line. And I think it's because as they think in a straight line, they start to feel the cognitive dissonance of some of the contradictions in their own thinking. And instead of continuing on that straight line, instead of feeling the, the, the dissonance and trying to fight through it and come to better conclusions, they just run and make another point. And they just go around in circles, and we're really bad at it. I mean, John Stewart is not an uneducated guy. He's not a dumb guy. This is just one of those signs of two things that I, I want us to make sure we don't do. I'm using Stewart here for two things. One, to show his argument is not good at all, and so don't be intimidated by it. But second, there's a reason he thinks it is. The reason he thinks his argument is good is because he's surrounded by people who agree with him, especially on guns. Now, Stewart might have some not-so-woke positions on other things, but when it, comes to, when it comes to guns, the thinking on the left is fairly monochromatic. There's one, there's one position on, it, on, on this. And so no one has been around to push on that very dumb point and say, hey, that's a non-sequitur. It's not... Uh, drag shows aren't guns, and they, that's not abortion. There's not, they're all very different things. I mean, we, we can fall into that trap real hard. You can find that if you'll surround yourself with only voices that agree with you, you will have, you will have arguments as bad as his. I think I, I cannot remember the specifics, but I remember experiencing that one time. I think it was in, I think it was in college where I had made the same argument over and over again. I think it was on an apologetics point. I don't even think it was in, in government in that part of the world. And realized in a conversation, oh, this is a very bad argument. It's super weak. You know, I, uh, do I have time? Yeah. Listen, I, I like the Ray Comfort guy from Way of the Master, uh, his evangelism method and all that. Uh, but, you know, he makes an argument that I, th- I think he's also trying to make a joke maybe, but he talks about an argument for God being the banana. The banana fits so perfectly in your hand, and it has out uh, an outward method of telling you if it's too early, when it's green. If it's black, it's too late. When it's yellow, it's just right. You should open it and eat it. And it even tilts towards your mouth. It's almost per- it's just perfect to eat. See how God's good design. Uh, so you have to be for a designer, not for 
you know, this natural evolution idea. And then I, I, mean, I was watching it and immediately going, you ever seen a coconut? You ever interacted with a pineapple? Pineapples are way better than bananas. Well, I don't know if that's true. I mean, coconuts are impossible to get into, and pineapples are going to kill you. Like, it's hard, really hard to eat a pineapple. Like, you can't use fruit as that argument. Now, again, I don't think he's being serious. I think he was telling a joke when he was doing that. Or, but, but if you're not around people to push on your bad arguments, you'll end up like Jon Stewart. He thinks he's got a killer argument there, and it's just really lazy and, and immature. It, and it's in part, I guess the last point I want to make on this, it's uh, in part because the, the danger presented to children from the two things aren't in the same category. If someone takes a child to a very sexualized display, that child is harmed by it 100% of the time. We're, we are not supposed to be exposed to that kind of sexual material when we're that young. For some kids, it's traumatizing. It's certainly just too early for it to happen. Um, I think all of us remember the first time we were exposed to sexual material. I'm, I'm so glad. It was so late for me in my life. Uh, we could run through some stories of wreckage for students, for students and young people who were exposed to sexual content way before they were ready. So the damage of having a four, five, six-year-old watching a very sexually explicit uh, demonstration is damaging 100% of the time. The general availability of gun owners in America, the fact that they exist, is damaging very, very little. The 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 type uh, the type of harm, the risk of harm, are so, are so not in one another's categories that the two cannot be argued. And he and that's obviously true because he did such a bad 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 time. Uh, had a, such a bad effort at it. All right, so we only ended up being able to do the three things. Uh, the, the global warming debate, the immigration debate. I highly encourage going to the Gospel Coalition's website or YouTube and watching those. They're super good. And then we got to correct John Stewart. I, I got to take this break. There's two more episodes. Or not this break. We're ending the show. Uh, the uh, two more episodes of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk. The podcast will go on after that. And I hope you'll join me. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.